Hi, everyone. This is Pivot from New York Magazine and the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Kara Swisher. And I'm Scott Galloway. Hello, Scott. You're very quiet today. Why is that? I'm sort of basking in your success. I watched 15 Minutes of Shame last night, and I saw you on there. They are the richest people in the history of Earth. I thought it was a fantastic program. I really yeah, explain what it. it is. It's Monica Lewinsky's uh, HBO Max special on bullying and shame and cancel culture. Yeah, it's essentially talking about how uh, these algorithms and these platforms have created a sub-industry and tapped into our worst instincts that results in some what I'll call righteous shame organizations. I mean, this all started, it was really interesting. It started with LA Fitness refusing to pause a pregnant woman's membership, and they got shamed mm -hmm. online, and then people got drunk with it and started shaming people kind of randomly, including a, an employee for the San Diego, I think, power and electric company who they thought was making a white supremacy notion, motion with his hands, clearly wasn't a, a Latino man, was fired. I mean, there's mm -hmm. just been examples. And obviously, and the thing I liked about it was Monica resisted the temptation to just make it all about Monica. I mean, she touched yeah. on her controversy, but she wanted it to be broader than that. And my takeaway, and I'm curious to get your takeaway, is that I thought the sort of lesson, if you will, is that shaming and canceling or call it consequence culture or, uh, or accountability culture. Which it is does what work. Roxanne Gay talked about. It does, yeah. And uh, by the way, Roxanne Gay tweeted at me. She's funny. Um, yeah, she it is. does. It does work. It is an important part of our society. Elected officials uh, should be called out. Uh, corporations, it works. But with individuals, it A, is not effective, and B, it, it, it's unfair and usually doesn't work. Yeah. And you just lose a lot of nuance. You can ruin people's lives. And you end up finding out later on that, you know, we just didn't have the time to really understand what this person was doing or saying or meaning. True. And sometimes True. I the, thought, well, although at the same time, she said some people deserve societal, pro you know, problems after they make mistakes. I think that's what was great about it. You didn't have the cancel, cancel culture warriors on one hand and the anti-culture warriors on the other. And that's what I liked about it. It's like some things deserve like one of the things that's happened with these people that are calling everything cancel culture is they don't want to take responsibility. As you know, I think it's accountability in some cases. In some cases, it's inappropriate, but it's not. This idea of people who've made their own little industries around it is just ridiculous. And I think that's the nuance has been lost. And I think Monica, as usual, which, you know, she has so much empathy for every side um, that she sees sort of the, 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 I think this showed a more nuanced story, I thought. But there, there is, uh, I think people need to show more grace and more patience and more forgiveness. There is now an industrial complex that, where the incentives online reward you for dunking on someone. And when they make a mistake, the, the, if you call it consequence culture, the, the, the follow-up question is, does the, does, do the consequences match the offense or match the offense and the infraction? And I think we've gone to a point where people are getting, uh, uh, I don't know what the term is, are paying a ridiculous price for the wrong st sentiment statement at the wrong time. I think it's happened at your company, the New York Times company. I think this is a moment where I, I, a lot of times consequence doesn't foot to the actual offense because perhaps, of algorithms perhaps. and because but of I a also mob think mentality. The yeah, but I think you're going, it's, it's like anytime, I'm sorry to say, anytime white people get in trouble, it, we have to worry about it and fix it right away. This has been happening to gay people, to people of color for and women for centuries. And the minute there's like a little out of lineness of it, 
everybody acts like the four alarm fire and it's just not. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I just, you and I are going to have to fundamentally disagree on this. The people highlighted in this show weren't, as you describe, aggrieved white males. They yes, were I get it. I get it. Women, they were Latinos. And, and also this notion that an overcorrection is warranted just means that injustice justifies further injustice. And I just don't buy that argument. Of course not. But the, the, the inability to have empathy for people who have suffered for centuries Right. is just exhausting. It's just exhausting. And I, I agree. I think she was nuanced in this. And I think there's a lot to be said on all sides. But these nine alarm fires by typically white men is just calm down. Like some of them deserve it. Some of them don't. Some things are unfair. And guess what? Uh, lots of things have happened to other people that are unfair for decades and yeah, decades in this country. It feels like so, we watched a different documentary. The documentary I, I, I watched saw people yeah. portrayed who were not CEOs of Agreed. media firms abusing women and absolutely uh, doing horrific things. They were people that said something stupid or, quite frankly, didn't say something stupid, and Twitter seized on them. Yes. And basically ruined their careers, ruined their reputation, sent them yes. into a spiral of depression. Yes. And it is yes. happening everywhere and happening with a lot more frequency. I think it's happening every day with teens. I think that there is tremendous shaming in a culture where SNAP and some of these other things just call on our worst instincts. And I feel as if that documentary should be required viewing yes. in the eighth grade. I get, I, I, Scott, I utterly get what you're saying. But what I do think is this is something Monica Lewinsky went through. And you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, Agreed. obviously unfair. And sometimes it's not. And that's why she had Roxanne Gay in there. That's why she had mm -hmm. me in there um, mm -hmm. to talk about those issues because it's, a, it's, it's such a nuanced issue and it's become mm -hmm. this reductive, just another thing to battle about, right? It's either one mm -hmm. way or the other. It's either this or that. And so I think that's why I liked it. I think it was much, it's, it's complex and confusing and nuanced. And I thought she did a good job doing that. Well, I, I want to I finish where I started and then try and draw a, a lesson or a learning out of this uh, for younger people. And that is, uh, what, I thought it was just great. And uh, uh, Bill Clinton is a hero of mine, and he isn't any longer, just because when I really honestly okay. think about what happened and how he handled that situation, I just think it's unforgivable to to throw a young woman to the wolves like that. I just think it's unforgivable. Yeah, I agree. And the thing I always loved about Bill Clinton was that I thought he really had genuine empathy for people. I really got the sense that he cared about people. And as I really like face what happened in a sober fashion, uh, they just took a very promising young woman's life and had generously put it on pause for 20 years. And that's yeah. just a terrible thing to people. Humans don't do, should not do that to other humans. I think... One of the things is that I would listen to the interview I did with her because you, mm -hmm. everyone really likes her and they realize, and it's not just Bill Clinton, by the way, Bill Clinton's the principal person, but Ken Starr, the FBI, the media, comics yeah, on late night television. Well, Hillary. Hillary, a hundred percent. I mean, I just consider them together. And I, and it's really, um, she has shown so much grace that it's hard to imagine where her huge amount of empathy comes from, given what's happened to her. Agreed. I, I think yeah. she's she's a role model for people. But the the word in there, and, and this goes back to the lesson, is this notion of Schadenfreude and this notion that we would rather see an opposing team miss a goal than our team make a goal. We yeah. revel in other people's failure, and it's a really unfortunate thing about our species. But the wonderful thing about our species is it evolves and it learns and can modulate. And what I recognize 
is that I, one of the things I don't like is that the media, everyone piles on people when they're vulnerable. Oh, something bad happens to them, so let's find everything they've bet, done, and then people start coming forward, and oh, she or he also did this. And in terms of your own personal relationships, uh, and I think this is a flaw I had as a younger man, you're drawn to people when they're successful, and you kind of get allergic to them when something bad happens to them. They yeah. get fired. And the reality is, if you want to be a good friend, you run to people when they're wrong. And that is, people don't need you when they're right and when they're killing it. People need you when they fuck up and they're getting you know shit rained on them. And I think a lot of young people don't figure that out. At least I didn't until I was older, that a real friend— you don't need friends when you're, you're right and killing it. You need friends when you screw up. So I always tell young people, when someone in your life screws up, run to them and, and be supportive. I, and and schadenfreude, is a, schadenfreude is a terrible instinct. It Understand is. it and try and starch it out of your life. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if you read a lot of tabloids before the internet, but this, that's what they were doing, right? This 100%. is nothing. Monica Lewinsky happened pre-internet. So did Diana. So did a lot of, you know what I mean? Like this sort mm -hmm. of hunting for people. And I think it's, I think it's a human condition, but it's become more amplified with all these tools for sure. So yeah. I will try, yeah. I will not insult you online, Scott. I will make But I cut. enjoyed it. I really, yeah. I really, um, I thought, I thought it, I was really moved I'm by glad. it. I'm glad you tweeted it. She was very appreciative. She wrote me a note. Yeah, I was really, like, I was really impressed Scott with Gallo. it. That's Scott Galloway's a nice guy. That's what she said. So um, Nick Clegg, speaking of non-apologies, people who deserve mm -hmm. the consequences, went on a non-apology tour this weekend and spoke to everybody but people who actually have covered the company. Here's what he said on CNN when asked if Facebook played a role in amplifying voices ahead of the January 6th insurrection. Look, uh, th that, uh, given we have thousands of algorithms and you have millions of people using this, I can't give you a yes or no answer to the individual personalized feeds that each person uses. We cooperate with law enforcement, of course, to give them content that, that, that might have shown up on our, on our platform. But let's be clear, of course, January the 6th, the responsibility for that is for the people who broke the law, I who inflicted the violence, who aided and abetted them, who encouraged them. Oh, Scott, what do you say? Uh, so... Look, uh, you said it. You summarized it perfectly a couple of weeks ago. You said no one's accusing them of being the catalyst no. for January 6th. We're also not accusing them of being responsible for all teen suicide. We're not, we're not accusing them of vaccination hesitancy. We're accusing them of being like a coal plant. Or if you smoke a lot, you, you get, you're twice as likely to get a cold. You're more likely yeah. to die of heart disease. You're more likely to get cancer. Facebook, the bottom line is the, our ability to control the externalities, their incredible ability to overrun all externalities and create delay and obfuscation has resulted in this noxious emissions that makes a bunch of very important things, teen health, elections, our discourse, makes all of these things just a little bit shittier every fucking day. Yep. A little and, bit shittier. I think that should be their <laughs> motto. A little bit shittier A little bit every shittier. Day. And then the other one that just drives me crazy is when he goes, you know, we absolutely support regulation and it's time yeah. and we need help. Find me, find me one goddamn House of Representative, one senator that will say, oh, yeah, Facebook really wants us, is, is helping yeah. us figure out a way to regulate them. That is just such unadulterated bullshit. If, if, it's just another line. You can hear them in these rooms making these determinations. I can just we see We want to give voice to the, the unheard. Meetings. I can see the meetings. I We're proud of our into, progress. I want to walk into these meetings as they're strategizing and slap them all, like, back to last Sunday. That's what I would like to do. 
I'm like, just speak English to all of us, not in English English, which Nick Clegg tries to employ his smooth British. What's interesting, I've heard from a lot of um, British people who are like saying, oh, we didn't like this guy when he was here before, by the way. Good luck with him, which is interesting. He was he was in the government. But the half-life is decreasing. Uh, it took, I think it took a better part of a decade for Shel Sandberg to ruin her reputation. Um, and I think it's ruined. I think it's over for her uh, on a lot of levels. Um, uh, I think his reputation will be ruined in 12 to 24 months because people have just had it. People just see through this shit. They're like, no, yeah. you're lying. You're, you're yeah. getting, and you can understand it. We live in a capitalist society. He's probably said, I'm going to make 30 to $50 million in the next three years. I can, I can insulate myself from the shame on my yacht. Financial security is important. I built up a lot of credibility making no money as a public servant. It's time for me to cash in. I kind of get it. Yeah. But, but the half-life on reputations over there is, is like the Trump administration screaming towards 2020. It's just getting shorter and shorter and shorter for these individuals. Well, it ain't good. And let me just say, um, I thought like Dana Bash did a very good job, but the fact that they're going to uh, non-people who covered it, you know, just to mm -hmm. do this, they won't return. Like, I have a dozen declines on any interviews, even off the record with these people. So they're trying to avoid people who know them, and they're trying to make their case directly, and they're like, you know, they'll get one. I, I hate to question. say this. You know who they're going to? Who? They're going to very talented um, very well-known journalists who don't know a fucking thing about technology and can't ask yeah. follow-up questions. Yeah. Brian she Stelter, tried. Dana she Bash, Chuck yeah, Todd. They, they don't I mean, okay, great. They're they're good, they're fantastic journalists. Yeah. I mean, quite frankly, you just sit there and go, "Well, what about I mean, they're purposely cherry-picking people who feel like a real interview but don't have the domain expertise to really drill down on these questions because yeah. technology is complicated. These people have no domain expertise. Yep, yep. Well, why would they pick the ones who could say that's bullshit, Nick, kind of thing? They wouldn't like that. Anyway, we'll see. We'll see where it goes. They're just going to try to rope a dub us out of this again. But you know what? I'm sorry. Senator Klobuchar's on to you, people. They're on to you. They're on to you. Amy. 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 Amy's gonna, she's on to them. <laughs> Can't you feel it? I want her to be president. Uh, she's my choice. President. Um, so a couple of quick things. Tesla's moving to Texas. Elon announced the company's oh headquarters will move to Austin, where it's also building a factory. The Fremont facility will remain open. Elon moved there. I don't know what to say. Okay. Why do you think he's moving there, Kara? Taxes. No personal income tax. 100%. And he stood on stage with you and said, I'm going to pay 53% tax. No, he's not. I have a bunch of options that are expiring uh, early next year. So I'm uh, th that a huge block of options will sell in Q4 because I have to, or they'll expire. Um, and my top marginal tax rate uh, is 53%. So you eventually uh, will pay a lot of taxes. Massive, yeah. I mean, basically majority of, of what I sell will be tax. He meant federal taxes, I believe. No, he didn't. He, 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 long term, when no, you exercise he was, options- He was talking first, about federal taxes. He was, but go ahead. Okay, federal long federal long term capital gains are twenty two point eight percent, and and short term capital gains I think they're thirty seven, and if he were to have short term capital gains, which he would if he exercised his options, he doesn't have to pay those on his founder's shares. Those are long term capital gains. But the difference between the strike price, and what the shares are worth, is a short term capital gain. Okay, fine. He's not going to pay that rate. The majority of his wealth comes from uh, founder shares, which he will never sell. 
He's going to pay no fucking taxes. And the little taxes he does pay, he's going to avoid 13% in California state income tax. Yes, so the notion, that they're, the notion that they're going to Texas for Tex-Mex or more friendly government, what extraordinary bullshit. He's piecing out just in time. He has leveraged California infrastructure, employment, the great universities there, the roads, the culture of innovation, built the, become the second or first wealthiest man in the world so he can go monetize it in a lower tax state. Yeah, they're all doing it. Just as if we have a tax treaty across international. Shit, come down to Miami. My God, all these people complaining about San Francisco governance. Well, Texas does have a background in space. Let's the, 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 There's lots of space facilities in Texas. Houston, we have a problem? Yeah. yeah. So, I yeah. mean, it, yeah, you're right. They're all doing it. And by the way, Ireland wants American companies to pay more in Texas. This has been a place where companies locate. But it did join more than 130 companies in setting the 15% corporate tax rate. Its previous rate was 12.5%. New rules would also make tech giants pay taxes in countries where their products are sold, not just where they have offices. That was a loophole. The deal still needs to be approved here in the U.S., and Republicans in Congress are expected to fight it. But, you know, it's moving in that direction. This, this idea that they can't hide money, hide the hide the money kind of thing. This was an Ireland's decision. I, yeah. I, Ireland did this kicking and screaming. Ireland's like, okay, we have a, a really wonderful culture. We have good universities, but we can't compete with all these different sovereigns to get firms like Apple and Google. So what they do is they become a tax haven. And basically America, and this is exactly what we should do, and OECD nations have said, we're not going to have a race to the bottom here. We have to fund our militaries. We have to fund our schools. And Ireland, if you don't do this, we're going to put you out of fucking business. And yeah. America could do that. And Europe could say, yeah. they could start putting all kinds of... So this wasn't Ireland deciding to do it. This was right, Ireland acquiescing. Yeah. And this is this is not... This should be done globally, and it should also be done intrastate. Because when, you, when you're trying to track companies and capital, not for innovation, not because you have better human capital, but just because you're willing to charge lower taxes, which eats at, the, eats at the, our ability to fund democracies and defense... That's just not cool. So I, yeah. I, this is a huge victory. I'm a, I'm a big fan of this. Well, we'll see. They'll, they'll find ways to get out of taxes. The whole point of life is getting out of taxes from the beginning of time. So time for our first big story. we got to get to it. Southwest Airlines canceled at least 1,800 flights over the weekend and is still digging out as of Monday. Supposedly for weather. <laughs> weather. Supposedly Blank for disruptive weather. Disruptive weather. Yeah, weather huh. called like anti-vax people blowing blowing air, essentially. The issues with air traffic control and other airlines didn't have that many problems. Southwest has struggled with staffing and morale issues for months. This was the happiest airline, if you remember. I don't know if you've ever been on a Southwest flight, Scott. Ticker LUV. Well, whatever. They're always like super fun. They sing at you and stuff, which is why I don't go on the flights anymore. Last week, Southwest decided to implement a vaccine mandate. Like a lot of other airlines, the pilots union has asked the court to block it. Last year, Southwest has reached a deal for uh, $3.2 billion in federal bailout funds. I, you know what? Ugh. It's hard what? to imagine that you could make unions, pilots, and Southwest look this bad at the same time. Yeah. This is a company that took $3.2 billion. This is an environment where you are in an encapsulated, airtight, pressurized environment, and you don't want to get a fucking vaccine, boss? Mm-hmm. I mean, and you took $3 billion from the government? Yeah, and you're coughing all over people who pay money. And the union is making excuses for them? Mike, I mean, this is, I thought this was a headline from The Onion. Yeah. I, I can't imagine people more deserving to be fired. Businesses can do what they want, and they should 
require their staff, if they have a huge amount of time spent with the public and each other, they should be vaccinated. Thank you. It's a mandate. Biden showed some leadership here. It's the wrong word. People, what would you do? Okay, Mr. Marketer, mandate people don't seem to like, even though they do things mandated all the time, like you mandate stop signs, they mandate, you know, traffic. Oh, I, I would I would I would take the delicate approach. I'm like, it's the law and we're gonna lock your ass up, dipshit, if no, you don't comply with the law. No, that doesn't seem to win. That's not winning. You're a mark you're a famous marketer, Scott. What mm. would you call it besides vaccine mandate? Uh, uh vaccine opportunity. I guess. Um, oh, that's good. Opportunity. Vaccine wall. Call it the wall. I don't know. <laughs> uh, this requires, this isn't about branding. This is about leadership. Enough already. I can't, I just, you want to get your union to stop you from getting, I mean, I, I read this and I thought, my God, I just am so out of, I'm quite frankly, I'm just out of touch. I would be, I would have thought they'd be the first people that would want it. They shouldn't take the government money if they're going to do stuff like this. It was interesting that they, or that these groups can really organize and shut things down in a lot of ways, of course. And tech workers can't. I was just making that comparison. Like, nobody organizes very well, but they manage to do it. But we'll see. I think this is just one of these things. These The, the vaccine, I mean, you know, the Biden administration has gotten into the ugly part of the journey, of the, the journey of the early administration. And that's really a problem because it's all over the place, whether it's you know, immigrants at the borders, Haiti, Afghanistan, the vaccine mandates, the infrastructure bill, there's a lot going on where it seems that the they, they don't have control of the situation. So It feeds into a bigger issue, and that is almost every company that has a lot of employees is really struggling right now. The employees have yeah. so much leverage right now. Yeah. Um, and as business comes back and a lot of people are reevaluating their lives and uh, it's just employees have the upper hand and they're, you know, in a lot of good ways around wages. This really shocked me, though. And I thought that Southwest, I thought the union, much less the pilots themselves, really look bad here. I think this goes away. I think they're all going to decide this is a really bad look, guys. This is a really yeah, bad look. But what do you look. do if you're the CEO? You're the CEO. You say, well, that's what the United Airlines guy did. He said, you, yeah. gotta, you have to have a vaccine. And if you don't yeah. want to work here, that's your business. Yeah. That's what you do at yeah. Southwest. Yeah. All right. Go, now, go, now, go apply now, for a job at Spirit Airlines. Southwest is denying it was a um, pilot sick out that drove weekend delays, just so you know. Just so you're aware. I said it was the weather, which was tremendous bullshit. Yeah. They're, they yeah. are trying – they have – Southwest, by the way, I think it has a market capitalization greater than every other American airline combined. It's a really well-run company. Um, uh, they are – their hair is on fire. They're like, okay, this is a terrible look. And so they say, call it weather. It wasn't weather. I, I even went mm -hmm. on a flight map, and I'm like, where's their weather problems? And the other airlines were canceling flights. I think Southwest, uh, what is clear is that it's pretty obvious Southwest um, probably recruits or gets a lot of its pilots from what I'll call more conservative pockets of America. Yeah. Um, but, but they're saying we can say with confidence that our pilots are not participating in the official or unofficial job actions. Um, I bet I've read otherwise. So I don't, mm -hmm. I don't, I, I, I'm open to learning here. Is it not the pilots? I read that it was <laughs> the pilots. Yep. Uh, it's going back and forth. People are doing reporting on it. It's very, it's very thing. What the issue is, is these, these vaccine mandates have made people angry, some workers, some not. Um, but they're saying it's, it's disruptive issues. I mean, disruptive weather and ATC issues, air traffic control issues. There you go. But 
Vaccine mandates are continuing, people, so suck it up. And of course, the minute this happened, and it was the rumors were that it was this, um, all the right-wingers came out saying, see, we have power, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I don't get it. They just want to break everything. They do. Anyway, let's go on a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about Rent the Runway and chat with our friend of Pivot, Eli Zaslow. Scott, we're back with our second big story. Rent the Runway filed for an IPO last week. The company was once valued at a billion. It was a unicorn, but then it raised funds at a valuation of $750 million. It's not profitable, never has been. During the pandemic, loungewear and casual wear made up a larger portion of the business than they had previously. They had to cut back on certain things like unlimited subscriptions. So what do you think about this? I took a break from tech last night and started, um, I love bird watching S1s and reading them. And there's sort of the good and the bad and the ugly. I hadn't had a chance to look at special retail. Like the good is Warby Parker. It has real moats. Customer acquisition costs are good, CAC. It's trading, in my opinion, it's overvalued at $6 billion, but it's a good company. Just so you know, for those who don't know, Warby Parker does eyeglasses. That's right. Good company, overvalued, but it could grow into that valuation because it's a great company with real moats, great supply chain, good margins. Why, why do you think it has great moats? A lot of people think those glasses are cheap. I, I, that's where I get all my glasses. I think the combination of the stores, the customer service, the um, fantastic online marketing they do, and yeah. the ability to go into that store and feel like they're going to have an 80% of an $800 glass for 99 I think they've made glasses disposable, and I mean that in a good way. They're kind of the Zara of eyewear, and mm-hmm. I think they have a great brand, great retail footprint, great execution. Yeah. I mean, I'm just – I spend – I spend two, three hundred dollars, you know, every couple of months at Warby. I just go in and buy two or three pairs of glasses. And yep. I think they do a fantastic job. I do a lot of their online stuff. It's very well integrated. Everything's well integrated. On running, it's got a huge market cap. It's this niche cool brand, Roger Federer, Swiss kind of engineering athletic wear. Right, that's right. It threads the needle perfectly between wealthy people having too much money and making them feel like they're in the know. I wear on. It's a great little brand. It's also overvalued, but that's good. The bad is uh, Allbirds that is is given into this bullshit metrics. I don't think they have nearly the moats. They're trying to go public. I I think that'll go out, but be an underperformer. But the ugly, quite frankly, is rent the runway. And let me say, well, I love the concept. Mm -hmm. I love the founders. It's like one of the few companies uh, founded by two women. But but it's a fucking shit show of a business. And the disclosures, the mandatory disclosures around, I don't know, revenues show this. their revenues fell to 157 million okay. last year from 256 the year before, and the loss was 171 million in yeah. 2020. So you think, okay, but it was a pandemic year. But this year, in the first six months, they lost 85 million on 80 million in revenue. So what you yeah. have here is a company with negative EBITDA margins of 100 plus percent, and that's okay. If you're growing really fast and showing some scale or or increases in contribution margin that result in a decrease in loss, there's no evidence of that. What we have here is a company that's cemented in the following value proposition. The only way Rent the Runway works is if they give you $2 worth of service and they charge you $1. The other thing here, the other thing, and you know, in poker, there's something called a tell, and that is you see someone sweat or twitch and they reveal something they didn't want you to know. And there's a tell here, and that is last year, Rent the Runway did a smallish $25 million round at a down round. And it's not the down round that's the 
that's the tell here. It's the $25 million round because the people around the table here are some of the biggest investors in private and venture. They are. And their biggest problem right now is how do we shovel the billions of dollars that we have taken in into companies and put it to work. So if the people around this table didn't think this was anything but a fucking cash incinerator that was going nowhere, they would have stuffed 200, 300 million into this company. And here's what's happening. They've decided that the IPO market is the greater fool and they're using the IPO market as a life raft. Ah, that's what I was gonna ask you. That was my next question. Why then IPO? It's not gonna happen. Not gonna happen. The markets, uh, I do believe in the markets. The markets are going to slam the fire door shut. They slammed it one week before uh, we work. You watch. They're going to start making excuses for why they're waiting for market conditions to improve or to show better numbers. I don't think this thing ever gets public. And also, worse than that, the business makes no sense. It's been around 12 years. The investors must have very tired legs. This thing, it, the, every day this thing doesn't get sold. And they, they have value. They have a customer list. They have a nice brand. There yep. are other retailers that want to be in this business. This thing is not getting public. And it's sold, hopefully, in the next six months. All right, but talk about the, what, what you like about it. You said, I like the concept. The concept was, people don't know, is that you, there's, it's changed and morphed over the time, but if you wanted to have dressy clothes, you didn't want to buy the dress and you wanted to try lots of fashion, you would, you would rent it. You would rent the runway, essentially. And then it turned into a subscription business where they'd send you clothes for work uh, and then you mm-hmm. could buy stuff too. Like there's, mm-hmm. there's lots of different things they've iterated. Great idea. I happen to use Stitch Fix. I still do. I like it mm-hmm. very much. Um, mm-hmm. And I buy quite a bit. I buy a couple hundred dollars a month from it because um, they've sort of got my number finally when they realized I was at, I was an asexual, tasteless lesbian. Um, but one of the things <laughs> that I, it's true, they wrote me a note saying, we finally figured you out. You have no taste, um, but which I appreciated. But talk to me about where you like it and how it could work. Well, it's a great concept. It's great for sustainability. It's yes, a really attractive value it's proposition. There's another word that they're using, but go ahead. Well, technically, more people should be able to use these products um, right. and get more use out of them. Um, it's a great idea. I'm going to, I got invited to this great fundraiser. I'd love to wear this Oscar de la Renta or, you know, great, fantastic, you know, Gucci dress or whatever. I would never pay $7,000 for this dress. But I will pay a hundred or hundred fifty dollars, whatever it is, a month. It's a great concept. Here's the yeah, problem: they also do it other does, things. They don't just do fancy anymore. Go ahead. They've gone into other categories, and you can buy the clothes. The problem is, I don't know if it's operational on the supply chain. The business just doesn't work. I mean, the numbers don't lie here. They have not figured out a way to not hemorrhage money. And so, uh, by the way, uh, Casper was a great deal when it first came out because they were giving you a. a $1,200 mattress for $700. And that's what mm. you're getting here. I, I imagine consumers love it because yeah. they're getting $2 worth of service for only paying $1. Netflix did the same thing. Amazon did the same thing. And that worked out. But every time they grew, they were able to reduce their losses. There's no evidence there's any scale here. Yeah. Growth is what they needed. And the pandemic you know, kicked it in the teeth. And it may not have been growing anyway. So it's a specialty retailer that's been around 12 years with 100% negative EBITDA margins, and it's trying to position itself as a tech company. It's not. It hurts. It buys products and it leases them out. And they now have good tech. But once COVID hit, Hertz was out of business and declared bankruptcy. And this is a very similar item. And I was really bummed because I, and not the thing that did piss me off, and I thought, I'm going to keep quiet about this because I really like these founders. The thing that pisses me off is all of these companies are putting in place dual class shareholder structures. 
And I got to imagine the two founders of Rent the Runway, who are both very impressive women, own less than 10% based on all the rounds and all the dilution. But they've decided they need to maintain control so they can continue to create a Chernobyl-like incinerator. It's just, I mean, I guess what's good for the goose is good for the gander. But all these companies, I do hope the markets start to check back on this dual-class shareholder structure. I think it's bad for, I think it's bad for shareholder governance. Anyways. I agree. So on this topic of subscriptions versus ownership, GM said this week that expects its in-car subscription service to generate $25 billion by the end of the decade. People might be okay with not owning DVDs and records, okay not owning their clothes and their car. You know, as you, I, I struggle with the car ownership, as you know, I've written about it several times. So this is essentially just renting rather than car subscriptions, right? Isn't that just renting? But I guess it's a long, or is it leasing or It's kind what? of the same thing. Yeah. It's kind of the same thing. And it's, it's an idea, whatever you call it, recurring revenue or a bundle. There's going to Tesla is the company to do it, but uh, Cadillac was doing it for a little while. They basically say, "All right, we know you love the brand, and we know your taste, and every six months we're going to park two amazing cars in your driveway that we think you would love, and you pick the one you want, and we take the other one back, or every three years, yeah. or and based on your economic weight class. And buying a car is awful, and we make this mistake over and over, and that is believing that choice is a good thing. It is not. Consumers don't want more choice. They want to be more confident in the choices presented. And with fairly easy AI and personal touch, you could figure out the cars we want and give, help us avoid the, the nightmare industrial automobile retail complex that is auto dealerships. It really is, yeah. It's gotten better. I like Carvana. I like all these interesting, innovative new ways. There's to a buy ton cars. of innovative, but it's all playing off the same thing, and that is buying yeah. car stocks. Yeah, it does. That's the, that is pretty much the ad for all of these. What would be interesting is if there's a play here that involves crypto. I wonder if Tesla is going to launch a coin, and everyone that has a coin has a right to have a Tesla at any time of their choosing, and it'll uh -huh. take on as a store of value, and people buy a Tesla coin. That's what I would do if so I were you, Elon Musk. You would have a Tesla. I, I would use a Tesla sometimes, but I don't want to buy one. That makes sense. Yeah, but think about think about if you owned a Tesla coin, right? And it yeah. might have value. And given how crazy the markets are, it might end up being a tradable asset. And owning this coin gives you access to any Tesla. You know, you can't trade them in every three days. You can only trade them in every six months or every year. But you get to have a Tesla. Sort of like I trade in my Apple every year, my Apple phone. That's right. And you, you issue new coins based on your production or based on your uh, increase in production supply. So you end up with an asset that might be tradable. You hmm. end up with massive ability to raise money. I, I like quite that. frankly, this could go a lot of different places. I think Stanford's going to issue a coin. I think the best hospital systems are going to issue a coin. What would be the coin for? Anyone in your family that meets certain minimum qualifications can come to Stanford can engage in our in our alumni network, in our programming, and we're going to issue uh, 30,000 of them. And what do you think that coin goes for? Oh, a million dollars a pop? A Overnight, people. Stanford raises $30 billion. Better than that, the Langone Medical Center in New York, one of the finest medical centers in the world, says, you know what? All the insurance, all the billing, all the bullshit, all the admin, we take it off. You buy a Langone coin. And from cradle to death, we take care of everything. No insurance forms, the best best yeah, medical practitioners. Rich people get to have participate I'm not, in the coin economy. Okay, I'm not saying it's good, but what you could have is rich people could buy coins and donate them to people in need. You could get around that. Oh, great. Charity. Oh, yeah, yeah. We're back to like the poor houses and. I, I'm not talking about what should. I'm talking about what I think will happen. Are there no poor houses? Are there no. Oh, my God. I don't like any of this. 
Scott Galloway. Come on, the edibles are just kicking in. So I think that there's going to be a collision. There's going to be the crypto might be able to monetize the scarcity value of of incredibly scarce assets that we don't think about through a consumer lens, specifically aspirational universities and access to aspirational healthcare. And you're right, I'm not sure it's a good thing. I like all these ideas. I think they should bring Nick Clegg in as the PR person for it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> A kidney coin. Need a kidney? Do you got a coin? <laughs> Let's see you do that. Let's bring in our friend of Pivot, Eli Zaslow. Eli is a Pulitzer Prize winning author and roving reporter with The Washington Post. Since the start of the pandemic, he's traveled to every corner of the country collecting first-person accounts of Americans dealing with COVID and its fallout. He selected 27 of those personal tales for his new book, Voices from the Pandemic. Americans tell their stories of crisis, courage, and resilience. I love these stories. They have been incredibly moving and also makes me see people who I don't agree with. Welcome, Eli Zaslow. So, welcome. Welcome. So, I love this series. I have to say, some of the best writing has been yours on these people because it actually humanized, not just humanized them because it's happened to humans, but also that it, it makes you question things and disagree with people, but in a better way. So, I wanted you to talk about how you decided to do the project and, and your expectations. Sure, I, I really appreciate that. Um, this this was a different kind of project for me too. You, usually, my journalism is sort of um, embedded first person journalism, where if I'm writing about somebody, I'm I'm trying to go and be there with them. If if they're going to the doctor, I go along. If they're being deported, I'm there in Mexico for their first week back. Um, and particularly during the early weeks of the pandemic, it became clear that that kind of embedded narrative journalism was going to be really complicated, um, if not just totally unethical, for me to get on a plane and go spend time with the people I wrote about. So instead, I tried to figure out how can I still tell uh, intimate, personal stories about what's happening in people's lives at this historic moment without my eyes, without seeing them, without being there in person. Um, and so I started making these really long phone calls to people who, whose lives were being sort of upended by the pandemic and, and sometimes talking to people for you know, 15, 20 hours over the course of a week to sort of write about um, what they were dealing with in real time as, as the pandemic worsened. And you, you did it all on the phone? Almost all on the phone, yeah. Uh, you know, and, and building trust with people from from one phone call to the next. As the pandemic went on, I started getting on planes again. Um, certainly once I was vaccinated, started doing more reporting in person. But initially, it was mostly very long phone conversations, FaceTime calls, um, and then also having people sort of share their text messages, their Facebook posts, all, all of the things from their own lives with me. So what was the what was the reason you wanted to do this? I, 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 conceptually, I, I I wouldn't imagine it would work, but it really does. It, it, a lot of them, a lot of them do for sure. I, I mean, I think I think really the reason um, was like my own compulsion to get outside of my own little pandemic bubble. I, I mean, we're all you know increasingly polarized in this country, um, and and certainly increasingly isolated by technology in so many different ways. But the pandemic exacerbated that. Um, you know, for me personally, more than anything else I can remember in my lifetime, like. We were we were sort of quarantined in our in our own homes, um, in our own little ideological bunkers, and and you know my reporting instinct was how can I find a way to get beyond that? And, and instead of thinking about myself and what's happening in my own life and inside my own living room, to hear about what's happening to other Americans who are dealing with different versions of this crisis, you know, all the time, um, you know, and, and then in making phone calls to those people and talking to them, trying to make clear that that I'm coming to them not from a place of judgment necessarily, but when possible from a a place of understanding. I'm trying to understand what's happening to them, why they think the way they do, why they feel the way they do, um, and, and how things are proceeding in their lives. 
you've done a great job kind of cataloging and really putting a face on some of the the real struggles people have, the mundane and the extraordinary uh, through the pandemic. Have you thought about spending time, and I'll put forward a thesis and ask if you've written about it, I feel like the dirty secret of this pandemic is we know what single mothers are, have an idea what single mothers are going through, and there's been great reporting. We have an idea what people of color who are overweight are having to deal with or frontline workers are having to deal with. Or you know, has, Have you written at all about how I believe wealthy people are living their best lives, that COVID has been accretive to their life? Have you spent any time with the top 1% documenting what the what the pandemic has meant for them? Yeah, it's a great thesis, Scott, and I think you're you're – Spot on. I mean, in every way, uh, you know, the the inequality that um, is so much at the heart of of what America is uh, and and continues to be, I feel like, has been exacerbated by the pandemic, um, and and we're seeing it right. And in many ways, the pandemic has started to sort of um, end for the people who are privileged enough to have it end. Uh, but but meanwhile, on the other side, you know, you mentioned single parents, um, you know, people of color, kids who were in vulnerable situations before are so much more mm-hmm. vulnerable because of of this pandemic. And and you know, recently I've been reporting. A lot on on school situations in the pandemic. Uh, I was spending a lot of time in a private school where uh, the parents and the school have the resources to test kids constantly. They've been able to actually like expand their space, expand their fundraising during the pandemic. Those kids have been in school for for you know eight hours a day and and have also had those those educations augmented with tutoring on the side and everything else. And then I, I went and I started spending a bunch of time with the assistant principal in, in the Central Valley in California. A school of 2,000 kids. Um, and over the course of the pandemic, they lost track of 486 of those kids. They, they didn't know what happened to them. Those those kids didn't have technology at home. Uh, they were taking care of younger siblings. Their, their parents were- the map. Yeah, yeah, they fell off the map. And and so this assistant yeah. principal, every single Wednesday, um, what he does is he gets in his car and he drives around the migrant camps and the trailer parks of, of the valley trying to figure out what's happened to these kids and, and if he can do anything to help sort of bring them back into the school system. So you know, when you think about that kind of accelerating inequality that that you know the private school kids who had who who already had the privileges before and um, their situation in many ways has stayed the same or gotten better but their advantage has has accelerated hugely because these other kids have have not even been in school they haven't been able to have any education so you know i think that's really worrisome and and also it's why you know the story of this pandemic uh i think will will continue for you know generations and and you know some of my work as a reporter i think i hope will be continuing to document the long tail of this pandemic in people's lives uh well after it ends so one of the things that you also did is um not just people are doing better but this was before the anti-vax movement took hold but you had described encounters with anti-maskers which is sort of the next anti-vax is sort of the next step of this this idea of vaccine mandates we talked about them earlier with uh, with with possibly with southwest and all kinds of things that are happening but there's resistance so talk a little bit about talking to people you don't because your empathy is quite large i think i would just I don't know what I don't I, I I just couldn't listen. So talk a little bit about listening to people you really really don't like or agree with. Yeah, it can be a challenge, and I think uh, you know sometimes as a, as a journalist and a reporter, but also uh, hopefully as a human, 
Like what I try to figure out how to do is what are the parts of this person's experience that I can empathize with? Uh, no, like I, I'm not, I can't empathize with somebody, somebody's idea that this virus doesn't exist uh, and somebody who's spreading disinformation and conspiracy theories online. But hopefully I can still empathize with them once they're in the hospital and about to be intubated and, and the pain mm-hmm. that they're experiencing and their families are experiencing. So, you know, I think a big part of just um, forming connection with people, no, no matter how we do that in our lives, is figuring out what are the things about this person's experience that makes me curious, that makes me feel something? And sometimes even if the thing that makes you feel is anger, that's okay to lean into that and let that guide your curiosity. Like this, this the fact that this person has fallen into this dark tunnel of disinformation is it's infuriating to me, but it's also really fascinating. And I want to try to figure mm-hmm. out how that happened. And that was a lot of this reporting because you're right that these like, you know, these these tunnels of disinformation are vast and and also right. they include huge numbers of people in our country. I, one, one of the pieces in this book uh, is about this woman named Amber Elliott, who's the public health director in a, in a county in Missouri where nobody in that county wanted to, to mask. Um, nobody in that county now really wants to get vaccinated. I think their vaccination, vaccination percentage is still in the mid thirties. And Amber, her job was to try to keep this community safe. And so she'd, she'd had a, a or, organized a forum where the doctors at the overwhelmed hospital came to try to speak to the community about the virus and what was happening. And the doctors showed up at this community theater and got booed and things thrown at them and got booed off the stage, the people who were in charge of, of saving this place. And, and Amber, you know, this like low level public official, her kids were being followed to their baseball games by, um, by anti-maskers mm-hmm. and things like that. And so, you know, I think some of the work of being a journalist is when, the, when there are big fundamental problems in our country that are impacting all of us to try to examine them um, and understand them and, and try to figure out what makes people fall into these dark places. And during a pandemic in particular, like times of high fear, high anxiety, I think we, we go toward disinformation um, naturally more quickly. We talk a lot about Facebook as a vector for COVID misinformation. What role did, say, Facebook or social media play in the lives of your subjects? Huge, huge roles. Is it where they got most of their information? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, in part because I think people spend more time on Facebook because of the pandemic, uh, you know, than ever before. Many of the people that I was talking to, that was their only source of connection. Um, so, you know, for instance, if if you're spending, you know, half of your day on Facebook going through your newsfeed, first of all, as we all are cultivating our own news feeds, that information is very likely to be confirmational. It doesn't challenge our biases or the way we think about mm-hmm. the world. It comes from people who think like right. us. And, and so people who already are, are headed into a direction of, I'm not sure if I really believe what the government is telling me, or I, I, I'm very distrustful of big pharma or vaccines, they're likely to be friends with people who think the same things. And if you see those things again, 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 when you're having very little contact with the outside world, when you're just sitting and really you're like, Life is occurring on the screen in front of you. I think that that grows those ideas, and and there aren't people around you to challenge them if you're isolated in your own home and you're not going to work, you're not moving through the world in different ways. So certainly that was a, a huge issue for many of the people that I spent the year talking to, and and also on the reverse side of the disinformation, I think the anger that so many Americans feel right now, um, and in some cases really righteous indignation, was a surprise to me. Angry at? Angry at the the systemic dysfunction, um, the political dysfunction uh, that that they felt like worsened their experience of the pandemic and and wondering why why are things as bad as they are? Why were we as unprepared as we were? Um, Why wasn't this handled better? Why wasn't the country more willing to shut down early and maybe that would have helped things? Uh, I think there's huge anger at at how, how, how the virus was handled. 
So, Eli, I knew I recognized your name and I uh, uh, was doing a meeting with my team today and someone goes, oh, that's the food stamp guy. <laughs> and I'm referring to Eli won a Pulitzer in 2014 for reporting on food stamps. And uh, uh, and I remember uh, reading about it and I have just like uh, some of the stats I pulled up. One in, se- one in seven Americans are on food stamps. A lot of grocery stores do 20% of their business on days that food stamps come out. Food stamps are a lifeline to individuals, community stores, and employees that stores hire. So relating that to COVID, what do you ha- what happens to the food stamp program uh, coming out of the pandemic? What impact do you think this will have on food stamps? Well, a massive impact. I mean, first of all, those those stats that you read, those came out largely of, of sort of the fallout from the economic collapse in you know, 2008, right. 2009. And, and what happened then is that, you know, again, the high end of our economy recovered, recovered quickly and, and uh, accelerated and did really well. But the food stamp numbers have not shrunk dramatically since then, right? I mean, people who were, were, yeah. were vulnerable then continue to be vulnerable. That's the part of our economy that never really recovers. Uh, and, and I think we're going to be looking at a very similar situation. I also think that it means that programs like, you know, SNAP, the food stamp program, um, are, are massively important in, in a safety net that's going to be relied on to huge degrees by millions and millions of people. I mean, if you even just look at sort of the, you know, the eviction numbers and, and what they would be without government assistance and, and eviction bans and programs to keep people in their homes, you're talking about 20% of, of Americans who, uh, who would be losing the place where they live. So, you know, I, I think all of all of the work to sort of protect the people who are most vulnerable becomes massively important uh, in, in the wake of, of what we've all just been through. So I, I actually do have a last question. Um, so you traveled the country before and after the vaccine rollout. Um, I'd love to understand where you think we're going. One of the things I think you do really well is you treat everybody with dignity and great empathy, which is, as I said, difficult, I think, under the circumstances of anger or disinformation or ignorance. So tell me what changes you've noticed and what you think, what gives you hope? Because your stories are quite hopeful, even if they're sad. Um, And what worries you the most? Yeah, great questions. Um, I mean, I think the hope piece, honestly, is, is... at the bedrock of of my work and why I do it. it. It's that like over the course of the pandemic, for me, actually, the most hopeful part was being on the phone with people who, even though they were going through um, massive amounts of trauma, often often in real time while I was on the phone with them, they still had the capacity to trust a stranger, to get on the phone with me, even though Again, I wasn't there as an advocate. I was a reporter. I didn't necessarily agree with them, but I was curious and I was asking them questions about their lives. And they, despite all of the other things going on, were able to form some kind of trust with me where they could narrate their the, the circumstances of their lives honestly, um, with humanity, uh, with with empathy. Um, and I think like a re- being reminded of our common humanity uh, at a time when there what was so much reason to be upset with the direction in our country was was restorative in some ways um, and and i think for me always when i start to feel hopeless about the way things are going i try to think not about the numbers uh, which certainly in terms of covid can become numbing when you think about uh-huh. how many people in this country have died and are sick um, but i try to 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 reduce it down to a human scale and to think about instead like the one or two people that i know or that i care about or that i've gotten to know that have gone through things that to me are unimaginable and have still been able to do it with heart um, and with character and and that for me is something that even just personally kind of becomes a touchstone to think about uh, when i'm dealing with things that are not nearly as hard as the things that the people that i write Well, excellent answer. This is a lot of humanity. And I think that it's a real service, these pieces. They really got me through a lot of stuff when I was very angry. (laughs) 
No, in a lot of ways too, like everybody else. Don't call me. I'll just rant at you. (laughs) I like ranting. Anyway, the book is called Voices from the Pandemic. It's out now. Thank you, Eli Zaslow. Thank you both. I really appreciate it. All right, Scott, what a guy. What an amazing reporter, I have to say. They were really Yeah, but you know what the most impressive thing is? What? He's dreamy. Oh my gosh, look at that guy. (laughs) I mean, can you imagine that guy at like, I don't know, some bar on the Upper West Side, like with those dreamy, like Omar Sharif, George Clooney looks and somehow drops, oh yeah, when I got my Pulitzer. (laughs) My God, the trouble I could have gotten into if I had either of those things. Jesus you know what? Christ. That's because he's a good person. He cares for the people. Oh, yeah, that's it. That's it. Right. That's it. Yeah. One more quick oh, break. We'll be back for yeah. wins and fail. Yeah. Stop talking, Scott. Okay, Scott, wins and fails. I'm going to go first. Yeah, you go first. James Bond was so good. You can imagine why I've come back to play. Oh, you saw it. I did. I went into the theater. I bought seats all around me. (laughs) I loved it. It was a good one because they're kind of hit or miss. They kind of go one. They're kind of like 50-50. It was a good one. Huh? So it was long as all can be. Let me just say. yeah. I could take or leave the villain. I just thought uh, Daniel Craig was amazing. All these women around him, yeah. a lot of strong women characters yeah. uh, around him, including a new 007. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I think it's Lashana Lynch, who was also in um, Captain Marvel. She played mm-hmm. her friend, the, the pilot. Mm-hmm. Um, she spent a lot of stuff. I loved her. She was amazing. Um, uh, what's that woman's name? Oh, God, I'm going to forget Money her Penny. No, Holly Money Goodhead? Penny. Holly Goodhead? No, yeah. Pussy Galore, all Bond characters. No, the woman all who Bond plays Monty Penny is great. All the characters, the guy who plays Q was great. Uh, the guy who Barbara plays Bach, M is great. Jane uh, Seymour? No, no. Ursula no, Andress? No, it's not, they're not there to show off their all together. They're there to be smart. I think it's Leah Sadu was amazing. Everybody was good. And he was great. And it, it, let me just say, there's an ending, and it's appropriate. It's hmm. the right ending. Let okay. me just, I'm not going to say what it is, because I'm not going to give it away. But it ends Good ending. beautifully. Beautifully. Really? It I'm going to see it. I'm going to take my boys. I'm really excited. Anyway, that's what made me win. My fail, I don't have a fail today. I just love James Bond. I'm so happy. I'm glad to hear it. Uh, my fail is uh, these ridiculous uh, changes in nomenclature that if we have a shitty business, we'll just change the language that all birds and yeah. even Rent the Runway is trying to come up with invented uh, metrics. But I, I just think it's got to stop. I think the SEC needs to move in and demand certain nomenclature and terms so we can go yeah. apples to apples because we have a reduction in analyst coverage. And anyway, that's my loss is these consumer companies trying to come up with new terms, whether it's community, community-based community EBITDA or EBITDAM and Allbirds has a new – anyways, the uh, ridiculous – uh, metrics. My win is I was, uh, uh, what we talked about, I was really moved by this 15 minutes of shame. And I don't know if you've noticed this. And of course, I like to bring everything back to me. I've decided I don't get into arguments with strangers online and I don't hit back any longer. And I think the best revenge, and I think there's a lesson in this, the best revenge you can have against any individual, the best revenge, if you want to serve them a cold lunch, live yep. a much better life. And right. and I've decided that I'm going to show more grace online. Oh. And I fell into the trap of like getting back in people's face, and they'd say something stupid, and like they'd you stick do their get ch- upset. They'd you sti- do get upset. Well, they stick their chin out, and I'd be like, "Okay, here it comes." Not just that. I think you get upset when people are not nice to you online. I think that's more of a problem you have. 
actually, if I were to diagnose that. I am a delicate little flower. But anyways, I've decided that um, I'm no longer, uh, and I think there's a lesson here. I think we all need, and I took from this program, you know, you don't have to respond to every slight. You don't yeah. have to, you, sometimes when someone is not nice to you, it's not about you. It's about what the fuck is going on in their life right now. You don't know what's That's going true. on in their life. And if the only way we're going to take the temperature down, and I think we absolutely need to do that, uh, I had a book party for Andrew Yang, and it's one of the things I love about Andrew is that he mm-hmm. he does he resists the temptation to go after his opponents. And I'm like, I just think we all, if we're all, we all agree that our discourses become more coarse. Of just take the temperature down. It's okay if. You know, if someone cuts you off on the road or if someone says something mean about you on Instagram, who the fuck cares? Live your life. Invest in your relationships. Be more successful. Be stronger. Look better naked. Have sex with hotter people. Make more money. Be closer to your kids. Just live a better life. That's the best revenge. Anyways, my win is 15 minutes of shame. It's validating a lot of the better decisions I'm making. All right. Nice. I like it. I like that a lot, Scott. It's very, very nice. Although sometimes I do hit back on people who are rude to you. You do. Often I do, but I do it quietly and then they're dead, essentially. Anyway, Scott, that's the show. Today's show was produced by Lara Naiman, Evan Engel, and Taylor Griffin. Ernie Andretot engineered this episode. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts. Or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or, frankly, wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening to Pivot from New York Magazine and Vox Media. We'll be back later this week for another breakdown of all things tech and business. The best revenge against anyone you feel has slighted you is simply to live a better life. Love more people. Have more of an impact. Be in better shape. Be the man or woman you want to be. Or a shift to the kidney. (laughs) 